From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbett. Well, it still says May on the calendar. It's starting to feel like summer. The dreaded triple-digit heat could come to Boise as early as, well, you know, probably by the time you're listening to this podcast. (laughs) Um, But the conversation is starting to pivot towards the fall and what school might look like in the fall. A, A lot of conversation this week about what public schools might look like and what higher education might look like. So we're gonna start there uh, because it is starting to take shape, and, and everything's so preliminary, and so much can change over the next three months, of course, but it's starting to take a little bit of shape. Yeah, I think that's a great caveat to throw in at the beginning, that we're three months out, and this isn't definitive plans by any means. I don't anticipate this is the final word, and it's really light on details. Um, and obviously, keep in mind that the last 90 days we've been through with the new coronavirus how much our world has changed. But I think what's different for me this week is I saw at a lot of different levels, policymakers and officials starting to talk about the fall and what that might look like. And, you know, obviously we've gotten through, for the most part, uh, winding down the end of the current academic year and starting to look ahead and starting to make plans for the future, uh, knowing that the coronavirus is out there, knowing that it does not appear that we're going to have a vaccine or herd immunity uh, mm-hmm. by the time that August and September roll around. But everybody from university officials to Governor Brad Little were kind of talking about some ideas and priorities this week. And maybe we could kind of break it down looking at higher education, looking at K-12 public schools, and, and, and looking at kind of what questions we still have to be answered, which are many at this well, point, right? Right. I mean, and I was struck by your coverage from a webinar earlier this week uh, with the State Department of Education and with uh, local school superintendents. A lot of, uh, you know, differences in approaches uh, from one district to the next. Um, You know, kind of walk us through a little bit of what you heard and what what jumped out at you. That was a really fun webinar. Um, I believe it was on Wednesday that the State Department of Education had organized And it was kind of cool. Schools Chief Sherry Ybarra actually served as the host, as the moderator for this webinar. But it was an online, kind of like a Zoom meeting, virtual meeting. And they had school leaders set up from across the state. Big school districts, small school districts, rural school districts. And the thing that they had in common was a lot of them had been honored in recent years as Administrator of the Year. So we had Marianne Reynolds, superintendent from the West Ada School District, Idaho's largest district, based on enrollment. We had Jeff Thomas from the Madison School District in Eastern Idaho, and we had the Lewiston and the Bliss School Districts represented, as well as Idaho Digital Learning Academy. And the perspective was all over the board, and that was kind of interesting to see, and I think that's kind of revealing about what the fall will look like. It may not be one thing in every district. It's not going to be one size fits all. And so you've got Kevin Lancaster, the superintendent of the tiny Bliss School District, mm-hmm. which I think is in Gooding County in South yeah, Central yeah, it's Idaho. Yeah, based in Gooding County. It's, it's kind of out there in you know, pretty extreme rural Idaho. If, you, if you've driven through Bliss or, or by Bliss, it's, yeah. it's a small town. It's a and small so Kevin Lancaster, the superintendent, was on. And it's fun listening to Kevin Lancaster because he's a highly quotable um 
leader. And as a journalist, I think you know what that means. But so he's saying, we're going back to school in the fall. We're going to run the buses. We're going to have kids there. Our plan is we don't want to have an alternate plan of connectivity. And then as the webinar went on, Kevin and Bliss talked about the only connectivity that he really cares about in Bliss is the connectivity between the school and the students and their families. But mm -hmm. that's one far end of the spectrum. And you got to keep in mind that, and Kevin pointed this out, that if the state has limited capacity and, and social distance guidelines in the fall, Bliss is already probably set up to handle that. They just had their graduation where they honored the school district seven graduates from the class of 2020. And Kevin said, we have about 10 kids in our classes now. And so he was adamant that he wants to go back. They, they want to, they want to have the face to face as traditional an experience as possible. But the experience from the others was very different. Uh, as you can imagine in, in West Ada, the largest district, Marianne Randall said, we hope, and we pray that we can come back for a traditional opening in the fall, but we know things might not go according to normal expectations. And so the thing in West Ada that they're really focused on is getting one-to-one -one devices and internet connect connectivity for all of their students. Um, and so that's an important thing in West Ada and something that I didn't realize. You know, West Ada, that's in Ada County, Meridian, sure. Boise. A lot of families do have connectivity but on this conference call, Superintendent Randall said they have more than 500 students in the district that are considered homeless, and more than 100 of those are considered unattended youths that don't have maybe a stable family adult presence at all. And as we've reported in the past, a sizable population of students who don't have access to the to the internet I yeah mean, a lot of them do but that's an issue in, in rural idaho and it is but it's not just an issue in rural idaho it's a, an issue even in suburbia right and so they're facing connectivity issues there as well and i thought that was eye-opening and a good reminder but marianne Reynolds thinks that although there are these disruptions disruptions and it's been frustrating she thinks that there's a chance that we can improve education, that we won't accept the status quo or go back to the status quo. So Marianne Reynolds had an interesting quote. We're looking at shifting public education from a group-based system to an individual or personalized system. We've been talking about this for years, but I think we're on the brink of something really exciting for public education in Idaho. And so I think there is this idea for some that as bad as this is, as much of a disruption as this is, as much as the experience varied all across the state this spring. Maybe there is an opportunity to improve the system, to never go back to the status quo. But it was a fascinating webinar. In, in right. Eastern Idaho, Jeff Thomas talked about, in Eastern Idaho, it does not have as many coronavirus cases, not by a long shot, as right. Central Idaho and Western Idaho. And Jeff Thomas said, the overwhelming majority of our families are hoping for a traditional return in the fall. And he said that means we're going to be focusing on sanitizing our classrooms and providing masks and Clorox wipes and working with families. But they're hoping for a traditional return in Madison County, which is not a tiny, tiny district. Rexburg is a, it's not a large city, but it's a sizable community. Right. It's probably more of a mid-sized district in terms of Idaho stature. Sure. And then up in Lewiston, 
the superintendent there said, I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen. It, basically, to paraphrase um, Robert Donaldson, he said he doesn't think that anybody knows what's going to happen. He said, I would love to think that we're going to go back in the fall exactly as we always have. But I think it's never going to be the same, is what mm -hmm. he said. He said, hopefully it will be close to the same. But I can't help but think this marks a time and place in education where we're going to have to be super creative with our approach here. And so it is kind of all over the board, depending on the community that these schools are located, depending on the prevalence of the virus, depending on the size of the enrollment, depending certainly on local politics and local preferences from parents. I think that the experience will be different across the state come fall. But we're starting to talk about it. And one more interesting thing before I kind of get your thoughts and response is the very next day, well, actually all week, Governor Brad Little had said a top priority for him is to have falls to have schools resume in the fall, to have them open in the fall. And that's a major focus with the new testing strategy and with the state's response to the coronavirus. So Governor Little has, has gone on the record as well saying opening in the fall, the ability to open in the fall is a top priority mm -hmm. for Idaho. So that's kind of the things that I was hearing in the field. I thought it was fascinating. I thought there's a lot of questions on the specifics that we still don't know and, and we won't know until we get closer. But what jumped out at you, Kevin? And then we can kind of segue into some of the other areas of education. Well, I think what it comes down to is uh, as schools start to talk about what this all might look like in the fall, they do have the benefit of, of time and experience. I yeah. mean, this has been a very uh, difficult experience for everybody involved. Um, having to move so quickly to remote learning and having to make that change within the and within a matter of days. You now have the summer. You, you now have the ability to look at what worked, what didn't work, what could be improved upon, what should be scrapped entirely. Um, you have the time to kind of take the step back and, and do some, some thoughtful analysis of where you've been and where you want to go. And, you know, yeah. But you still have the big unknown, and I think uh, Superintendent Donaldson kind of alluded to it, is you don't know what the world is going to look like in the fall. You don't know yeah. what the coronavirus outbreak is going to look like in the fall. I mean, you know, is there a second wave? Is there uh, a second wave that hits some communities harder than others? I mean, we've seen this already even in the first wave of coronavirus, you know. Well, yes, the Bliss School District is one of the smallest districts in the state, and it is a very remote school district. We've seen in that Magic Valley, we've seen in that general geographic area that some of the higher infection rates for coronavirus have been in that in the Magic Valley. Right now, the Maybe last... Maybe not in Bliss, but yeah. in, in Gooding County. In Gooding County, in Jerome, in Twin Falls County, those three areas have been hit particularly hard in the last two weeks, and some of that has been at a couple of different food processing or meatpacking plants in the general Magic Valley area, but that is an area, generally speaking, that over the past two weeks, those counties, uh, Jerome, Gooding, and Twin Falls, have seen an increase in cases over the last two weeks that's been documented. A tight, compact area where there's uh, you know, individuals who have the coronavirus who may not even know that they have the coronavirus who may be asymptomatic and spread the 
the virus. You know, that's what it, it takes to have an outbreak. And that's, you know, what we're learning along the way about this outbreak is that it doesn't really adhere to geography. It doesn't really adhere to demographics. It's not an urban <laughs> virus. It's not a rural virus. It's a virus and yeah. it can spread any place. And we've, we've seen that in Idaho. So who knows what we're looking at in August in Lewiston, in Meridian, in Bliss, in Rexburg, and, and all, all across the state. But what did come out, uh, as you talked about it, is you've got superintendents and administrators who have experienced a very difficult uh, transition, who have a lot of experience in, in the classroom that they bring to bear on, on this issue, who now have a little bit of time to look at what uh, what worked and what didn't work and, and look ahead to what you, know, what you might have to do, depending on what the, the virus does and what you might hope to be able to do if the virus allows you to do it. So, you know, I think uh, it's pretty clear what uh, superintendents like these four and superintendents and administrators all across the state are going to be working on this summer. Yeah, I thought that that was a cool webinar. I thought it was cool that the superintendent herself served as the moderator. I thought it was cool that the four of them plus Dr. Charlton from IDLA, it, it appeared they're speaking pretty candidly. They weren't beating around the bush knowing that, you know, hey, people are going to be listening to this. I'm going to... I'm going to play it safe and, and I felt like I wasn't in the room or anything like that because it was a distance event, but felt like they were being fairly kidded, but I thought that was cool. And I thought that that was a cool event. And when you talk about, you know, using these opportunities to learn and maybe make the future better, um, some of these types of remote events and roundtable discussions the technology is there and we're able to do cool things um, that people from all across the state can follow and participate without having to go to a meeting in Boise or whatever. And so I, I think it is cool to hear people all across the state get together via a web link and, and talk about what their plans are, especially because they're so different. But everybody was really respectful. Nobody was like, yeah, you guys over there in that part of the state, that'll never work. Everybody just really listened and thought it was interesting and it wasn't like anything is right or wrong at this point um i think everybody kind of recognized that so right i think i think we had administrators who recognize that they're they're all facing the unknown and nobody's got all the answers yeah so that that was interesting if you want to find out a little bit more about that at idahoednews.org if you want to go back earlier in the week i want to say it was wednesday that that story broke and we had coverage there but also you were tracking the situation at the higher education level, and we have a little bit more of a glimpse, particularly at what Boise State and University of Idaho are envisioning for the fall semester. Right. You know, and we what we heard from both universities is sort of a recommitment to trying to reopen in, in some manner, to, to get the campuses reopened in August. And that's going to look a little bit different. And it's going to look a little bit different than what we've, what we've seen in the past. And it's going to look a little, a little bit different at the two universities. So both schools are scheduled to begin their fall semester on August 24th. And what uh, Boise State officials said in an email to the university community, what uh, C. Scott Green, the president of the University of Idaho, said in an email to uh, his university community is, we want to reopen the campus. Um, now that's going to require some changes. It's going to require some modifications. Uh, 
you know, some smaller classes may move into larger classrooms or larger spaces than usual. Some larger classes may not be held as, as normal. There may be some classes that you have to move into uh, an online model or a hybrid model. Um, obviously, with trying to maintain social distancing, with trying to uh, you know, prevent uh, you know, large concentrations of, of, of students in the classroom, it's going to look different. And one of the big changes that Boise State is talking about is while the semester will begin you know, in August as regularly scheduled, after the Thanksgiving break, the final couple of weeks of the fall semester will take place exclusively online. So in effect, students will go home for Thanksgiving and they won't come back until the semester. And the idea there is uh, the university really does not want the, you know, to deal with what, what could happen after Thanksgiving break. Students come back, staff comes back, um, you know, maybe they're asymptomatic, maybe they're carrying the, the virus, and then you have an outbreak that, that comes at the end of that fall semester. At a time where, you know, health officials are warning a second wave could coincide with a flu outbreak. So you you really, Boise State really is trying to shut down the campus uh, for those final couple of weeks of the fall semester and take sort of an, a remote approach heading into the end of the fall semester. And, you know, that was one of the biggest changes. And that was one of the biggest modifications that we heard from Boise State. Still a lot unknown. It's really unknown what, uh, you know, what campus events are going to look like. Um, athletics, they said, look, we don't really know what's going to happen. And that's, uh, you know, going to be determined largely by what, uh, what, is, uh, you know, what decisions are made by the NCAA or the Mountain West Conference. But what you did here and what I did take away, and we have more details you know, on our website and have a more detailed story uh, that I wrote on Tuesday, is you know, university officials really do want to get the campuses reopened. They really want to resume a, a, a more normal uh, education delivery model. And it's, it's really, you know, as Green put it in his email, that's the University of Idaho's mission. It's a residential-based university. That's what they do. That's what they need to do. That's what they need to get back to doing. So, you know, again, in both cases, Boise State, University of Idaho said a lot can change. A lot is up in the air. But here's what we're hoping to do. Here's what we're trying to uh, to do in August. Yeah, it's been interesting. And one thing that just to keep in mind, the universities were very quick to react this spring, almost stopping on a dime the spring semester and moving online. I want to say before Idaho even had a confirmed coronavirus case, or perhaps it was that very same day. If the you same day, it, yeah. You know, they they were laying out their plans to go remote on that uh, Friday, March thirteenth was the first the day that the time that the state was announcing its first confirmed case, which obviously was connected to uh, Idaho State University's Meridian campus, as we later learned. The first so, patient, yeah. Right. So very quick transition at the university level. And now again, I think uh, the universities having had that experience and now having a couple of months to you know, come up with a plan, tweak a plan, modify a plan as needed, you know, a lot can change between now and August, but uh, you know, both universities, and I think this is probably universal across the higher education system, want to get back to something resembling normal. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, and, and this is a big part of, of what our summer and fall are going to look like, tracking this, tracking the state's response to the coronavirus, tracking the plans and preparations to reopen, tracking what it looks like when we actually get there. And so if you're wondering sort of our plans, I mean, I, mean, I we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but kind of looking at that as this is our present and our future in terms of the things that we're focusing our resources is how, how is this going to work? How are we preparing for the next semester? And then everything that comes with it and goes along with that. Sure. Um, but that's, that's kind of what our marching orders are at this yeah. point and what we anticipate our coverage looking like. It's just kind of following this and sharing ideas and then being there to document it um, once we get there. Yeah, because I think the one given is that the story is going to change. Yeah. So what we're talking about here in late May, whether it's at the K-12 level, or the higher education level, it's not going to be exactly what we see in August and September. Right. We know that. We just don't know what it's going to be. So our, our job and uh, our, our commitment is to try to stay on top of this and to try to give you the, the best information about what to expect, what the state of uh, what the state of play is at the, you know at, at a given point, knowing that what we say and what we write about in, in you know, at one point could be very different uh, within a matter of days or weeks. Yeah, it's a huge priority for us, but it will not be our exclusive focus. And we can start to look at next week uh, because for two different reasons in political circles, next week's a huge week for us, it, it for really policy is. setting, for education. But let, let's get into both things that we're going to be following next week. Right. So, uh what I've been following in the past couple of weeks, and it will come to a head next Friday, is this lawsuit involving State Superintendent Sherry Ivara, the State Board of Education, and the legislature. Oral arguments are scheduled for June 5th, uh, the morning of June 5th, which yeah, is podcast Friday. A week so from today. That's kind of convenient. We'll, uh, we'll tape uh, the podcast uh, that, uh, that day after the oral argument, so we'll get you caught up on you know, what was said and what the justices asked the attorneys, because this will be our first chance to really see kind of how the five Supreme Court justices uh, maybe are viewing this case. But wow, I mean, I've been spending the past couple of weeks reading the uh, the documents, uh, reading the, the court filings, uh, reading some, uh, some public records that we've received. And it is, uh, you know, it is a really personal battle right now between the superintendent and the legislature and the state board. Um, because we didn't do a podcast uh, last right. week because uh, we got some of the filings late the week before that, just to really quickly, very quickly get you caught up on the filings. Yep. Uh, two weeks ago, the attorneys for the state board and the legislature responded to the lawsuit. This was their formal response. And in a nutshell, the the attorneys said that the state board is the primary policymaker in education policy. They, the state board is the, the, the lead decision maker on education, not the state superintendent. And uh, attorneys for the legislature said that what the legislature did in shifting positions from Navarro State Department of Education to the State Board of Education is appropriate. It's what legislators do. It's uh, you know proper use of the the appropriations process. So that was their their takeaway. That was their uh, response uh, that we got uh, on May 15th. A week later, May 22nd, 
uh, David Leroy, the attorney representing State Superintendent Guevara, filed his response to the responses. And for the most part, uh, Leroy stuck to his constitutional argument that uh, the state superintendent has uh, unique powers uh, that were vested by the territorial legislature going back 150 years. Uh, to the days in Lewiston, when Lewiston was the capital. You know, long, you know, 1860s, uh, you know, vesting power uh, for education policy in the hands of the elected state superintendent. So that argument didn't much change. And, you know, one thing that did strike me in the filings uh, last week, in, in David Leroy's filings, was... Uh, one of the attachments really jumped out at me. It was a, a letter from Leslie Hayes, who is the Deputy Attorney General, to Lance Cloud, the Chairman of the House Education Committee. And what Hayes wrote in her letter to Cloud was that this issue about is the state superintendent the state's education policymaker or is the state board the education policymaker? She said, that's not really clear. And that uh, you can make good arguments on either side of that. And that's interesting because the attorney general's office is representing the state board. <laughs> right. But you know, she said, look, you, you could argue this either, either way. So the constitutional question, which is really what the, the, the Supreme Court is going to have to decide on, is um, you know, you know, it, it seems like it's a fairly fertile topic for discussion. You know, is the territorial constitution does it set the tone? Does it uh, place this uh, authority with the state superintendent? Does the state's constitution and the, um, you know, which was molded, you know, by the Constitutional Convention of 1889, does that vest power with the State Board of Education? I mean, that's really what the state uh, Supreme Court is going to have to to sort out. It's it's uh, fascinating stuff, and Superintendent Ibarra and the State Board have, I don't know if bumped heads is the right word, but over the years, there have been some meetings and some struggles over who's in charge of what and who has what authority. I remember a meeting maybe three or four years ago, certainly in Superintendent Ibarra's first four-year term, where I want to say that Emma Ashley was the president of the state board. They brought in a mediator to talk about roles and responsibilities and who oversees what. And so some of these questions about the constitutional responsibilities have been going back for years and certainly through prior administrations. But there's the constitutional question, but there's also the fascinating element of political theater. And you had an awesome analysis piece. Your, your weekly analysis piece this week was looking at the lawsuit and the nature of how what this comes down to when the rubber meets the road is Yubara has sued her colleagues on the State Board of Education and in the legislature, which she must work with. And you had a line in there that I love. The timelines weave a cloak and dagger tale of legislators who are determined to dismantle and defund Yubara's State Department of Education. And that's the perspective of of Yubara and her attorney, David Leroy. But a right. fascinating piece this week, Kevin, once you do go beyond the constitutional question to look at the political implications. The, the most interesting stuff that was filed last week was... Um, were two of the attachments to to the response, uh, an, an attachment uh, from Sherry Ibarra herself and from Marilyn Whitney, who is Ibarra's legislative liaison. Whitney is 
Ibarra's point person at the state house. And what both of them did over the course of the session was they kept a diary, in effect. They, they, they wrote a chronology of their discussions with legislators, their meetings with legislators, their discussions about this transfer of the 18 positions uh, from the department to the state board. And it just, it reads, yeah, it, it reads as, as just a, you know, a paper trail, a, a series of, of notes after meetings. Okay, I sat down with this legislator, I'm gonna write down uh, a synopsis of what, what we talked about and what I heard. And granted, it is one side of the story. By definition, it is one side yeah. of the story. But you had at one point um, Ibarra meeting Sally Toon at a reception and wanting to talk to Toon about uh, her, her departmental budget. And, and Toon said, I don't want to talk to you here. I'm at a reception. And Wendy Horman is there. And I don't want her to see me talking to you. <laughs> you know, and, and what also I, I saw in this was uh, Marilyn Whitney in her diary way back in the first couple of weeks of the session in mid-January, she said that she had been tipped off by a lobbyist that there were senators who wanted to get rid of the elected position of the state superintendent and turn it into an appointed position, which would require a constitutional amendment. I mean, is that, yeah, you know, a cumbersome it, process, to be sure. It is definitely a cumbersome process. And I got to tell you, being in that environment, I, I don't know one way or the other, but you hear a lot of... A lot of folklore in the halls of the state house from lobbyists about what may or may not be happening. Not to not to judge this specific claim one way or the other, but there's a lot of a lot of tales floating around the hallway of the state house during the session. Is that fair? Oh, definitely. I mean, we we hear it every day. Um, but what really struck me about that passage and why I focused in on that passage in my, in my piece on Thursday was that Whitney's account of it all. She names names. Yeah. She says that she was told that it's Senator Crabtree, it's Senator uh, Jim Woodward from, uh, from Sable. North Africa. Yeah. And Senator Jeff Agenbrod from Nampa. Those are the three senators who are most interested in making this change. Three Republicans in the Senate, Woodward and Crabtree also serve on the Senate Education Committee. All three of these senators serve on the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. So uh, budget writers and, and two uh, Senate Education Committee members. So I reached out to all three senators uh, this week and asked them, hey, you know, what was this about? And uh, all said that there have been discussions about the idea of doing this, uh, the idea of running a constitutional amendment, but nobody really made it sound like there was ever a serious attempt to do this. And there was never a, a proposal introduced. There was never anything formally introduced in a committee. Uh, Woodward described it as shop talk. But it yeah. gives you a sense, though, that these filings and what Ibarra and Whitney wanted to present to the court last week, it gives you a sense of they are painting this as a battle for survival. They are painting this as a, an existential threat to the office of the superintendent. Now, how that plays out, and even if that plays out in the court, it is open to debate. It's really, you know, as I was saying before, I think the, the justices are going to be focused on the Constitution and who has primacy based on the Constitution. I don't think the justices are going to be weighing in on you know the relationship between Sharia Barra and the legislature, but it gives you a sense of their mindset going into this uh, this lawsuit that this isn't just about 
these 18 positions and this $2.7 million. They, they are treating this as a, a battle for political survival. And I think that answers the question of why now and why is Superintendent Ibarra fighting this so hard? I think when you look at it from the protect the office, we view this as our fight for survival. Maybe that answers the question of why now and why dig in in this manner? Absolutely. To, to me, at least it gives us a glimpse into their mindset. Yeah. And whether you agree with that mindset or not, and whether you agree with their interpretation of how the legislature views the uh, State Department of Education and the superintendent's office, whether you agree or not, it at least gives you a glimpse into what they're thinking and why they're making this such a uh, you know, such a do-or-die battle in the middle of uh, a very you know, difficult time for education. It's certainly not an ideal time. I don't think any party would feel this is an ideal no. time to to litigate this and to and, and you've talked about the expense to the taxpayer and, and what that's going to mean. But anybody who's interested, like you said, the the arguments are going to be a week from today on June fifth. Anybody who's interested in this case or wanting to get caught up, I would suggest head to the homepage IdahoEdNews.org. Look for your story. On Thursday of this week, in particular, analysis Sherry Ibarra versus the legislature, and then you have some links to the court documents and it, to them attached, so you can read yeah. uh, Ibarra's account, you can read Whitney's account, and you can see what I heard from legislators as well. So, and it all sets the stage for next Friday. We'll be able to talk about the date before the Supreme Court. You know what the attorneys argued. Do we hear anything new from the attorneys? What sort of sense did we get from the justices? What kind of questions were they asking? Did they did they grill one lawyer more than the other? I mean, that's kind of the stuff you, you look for when you cover a Supreme Court hearing. Yeah. You know, what did they ask? And what was their tone? And what was the, uh, you know, what was the line of questioning? So we'll get a better sense maybe of how the justices are viewing what they've uh, been presented, what they've been reading. And we know at some point, probably fairly soon, we'll get a ruling from the Supreme Court because this, uh, this transition goes into effect July 1st. So I think the Supreme Court is, is putting this on a fast track, trying to get some sort of resolution. I would assume we'll see some sort of resolution sometime in June. But we'll have a hearing, and we'll have a hearing to talk about next uh, next Friday. Yeah, And you alluded to, what right. did you talk about on Friday? As, as if you didn't, as if we didn't have our hands full. Nothing else to do. There is a <laughs> just you know fill our empty time, right? An unprecedented absentee only election. Uh, we think we're going to know the results on Tuesday. Uh, but yes, sometime Tuesday night. I mean, so you know, ballots are due on Tuesday. So if you're on the, if you are sitting on a. Uh, on a, an absentee ballot, a mail-in ballot, and you haven't filled it out, you better do it right away, and you might want to drop it off directly. Yeah. Uh, because it's got to be in by Tuesday at 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. local time in order to be counted. So we will have some numbers. Uh, we may have some numbers... Uh, Wednesday we'll morning? Hopefully Tuesday night we'll have <laughs> some resolution. Uh, and we'll be watching uh, a number of legislative races that I think are going to be interesting. Uh members of the education committees, members of the budget committee uh, facing primary challenges. So we'll watch those, uh, a couple of open races uh, that are going to be worth watching, and some school elections as well. Uh, West Ada has a supplemental levy. Uh, Jerome has a bond issue. 
there are some other uh, supplemental levies uh, around the state. So there's a lot on this uh, on this ballot. No big headliner kind of elections, you know, nothing like a gubernatorial primary like we had two years ago. We do have congressional primaries. They've not been as high profile as uh, we've seen in past primaries. So it's really going to be some local elections, but some interesting local elections and some school elections that are uh, significant as well. Yeah, we will we'll be getting results reported um, as soon as we get them. It's a little bit of an unprecedented, well, it's completely unprecedented. So hope for the best, but we talked. And there have definitely been some some hiccups and glitches in getting ballots out. Yeah. Uh, that's why you had this extension of the deadline for people to request their absentee ballots. But one thing that really has been surprising has been the response to the vote-by-mail primary. I mean, you've had, you know, if, ever, if all of these ballots are returned, you will have the, the highest turnout we've seen for a primary election in state history. And that is really unexpected, especially going to this uh, absentee model in an election year where there isn't really a high-profile statewide primary. Not yet. Uh, the, the fall will be different, but yeah. The fall will be different, but really what we're voting on here in the spring, no you know, big, you know, nothing like the gubernatorial primaries we had two years yeah. ago. You still have a lot of voter interest in this uh, in this primary election. So we'll see how these races shake out. And as I say, some legislative races that uh, that I think will you know help shape the balance of power in the Republican caucuses in the House and Senate. So And particularly could have a large effect on, well, we know there's changes coming to the Senate Education Committee. We might have a better idea next week about how many changes could be coming to the Senate Education Committee. And then that will set up the fall general elections, of course. Uh, these are still just the primaries, the party primaries that we're talking about. But it's a lot on our plate. Um, even though, you know, the calendar is about to turn from May to June, traditionally there's a slowdown in the summer. Not so much. Um, a lot going on. And that, those are the things that we're going to follow. I know this show went a little bit long this week, but I thought we had three kind of big segments that we wanted to break down uh, that were worth some time and attention and that are taking up our time and attention. So I appreciate uh, you hanging with us. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this always complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. We will be back next week. It may be a little bit later release next Friday on June 5th because we anticipate a big news day. We're going to cover some of that news before we record the show. So it may be an evening podcast Friday, who knows, late afternoon. We will have a show next week, though. Yeah, we will hit the record button. And, and part of the reason is we know that we've got the court hearing uh, on on Friday morning at yep. 10 o'clock. We'll have to uh, write about what we heard, but we also want to get it on the podcast. So we'll record the podcast uh, sometime Friday afternoon and post it sometime Friday afternoon. So So stay tuned. Yeah, if you're if you're planning your weekend around our podcast, you know we'll we'll get it to you quickly. We'll get it to you just as best we can, maybe a little bit late. But anyways, thanks so much. Always have a lot of fun. Uh, hang in there and stay safe. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.